1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm the podcast host and a professor. And today we're going to continue our deep dive into COVID 19. And previously we've looked at things like the virus itself, the epidemiology surrounding the virus. But what about the social context? What about how people behave in the setting of the grocery store? And what are some trends that experts have analyzed with respect to how people's normal shopping habits have changed? And we're speaking with Leah McGrath. She's a registered dietitian and a licensed dietetic nutritionist uh, who has also a very powerful force in social media. So you're welcome to the podcast, Leah.
2: I know, Kevin. Thank you. It's been, I, I feel like I've known you forever on social media and so surprising that we've <laughs> never met face to face, right?
1: We still haven't. And no. uh, we, we we might get the chance to do that, but I hope so. it, it's funny because you and I have connected Oh, I hope so, too. And we've connected so many times yeah. over the last, what, five, six, seven years yeah. and have had so many good conversations online and in so many contexts. And I always wanted to have you on the podcast. And this is just a perfect time to do it. So when we look at your credentials, it says RD and LDN. So let's start out with that. What is an RD and what is an LDN?
2: Sure. So um, RD stands for registered dietitian. Sometimes you may see some people have it as RDN, which is registered dietitian nutritionist, which is still a recognized and protected title in the United States. So you can't call yourself a registered dietitian unless you have gone through a specific course of study and you are credentialed. Um, So that includes at least an undergraduate degree most dietitians have masters you have to complete get accepted to a an internship and it's super competitive right now the acceptance rate it's always been about 50% so only half the people who apply get accepted to an internship any given year and then you complete a 1200 hour internship that has a series of different competencies like you know um I did my internship with the Army, so I was an Army dietitian, became an Army dietitian. But they're all similar in that you have a certain amount of hours of experience in clinical, in a hospital, in public health, in food service, in administration. So you might do things like work with the Meals on Wheels program or work in public health. um, And you're shadowing people and you're doing a lot of hands-on projects for those 1,200 hours. And then um, when that's completed, you have to pass a nationally administered board exam. It's about a four-hour exam. And hoping uh, that you successfully pass that, you become a dietitian. And then you keep up continuing education credits at about uh, 20 hours or so a year in uh, continuing education credits. So... That's what RD or RDN stands for. Um, and many states like North Carolina, where I live, have a licensure policy so that in order to practice nutrition and specifically medical nutrition therapy or counseling of any sort, you have to be hold a license in that state like um, a, a physician would or a doctor would or a dentist would. And you... You pay a fee um, that basically says that you're allowed to to practice nutrition in that state. Well,
1: this is really important. And I think it's so important to set this up because I didn't understand the rigor that a dietitian would have to go through in terms of you you know, you say all these hours, continuing education, board exams yet the internet has so many people who claim to know more about nutrition and they call themselves nutritionists. Right. And so what kind of training do you have to go through to be a nutritionist?
2: Nothing. Self-proclaimed.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Kevin. You know, um, it's, um, we, ha- we, the internet has given, well, specifically things like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook have given birth to a whole generation of, Wellness coaches, health coaches, and nutritionists. That, if you dig a little bit, you find that most of them have um, probably little or no education, no formal training, or um, in in or science or research, or um, haven't passed a board exam. So the saying is that anybody can call themselves a nutritionist but only registered dietitians can call themselves registered dietitians
1: and i and i love that we started out with this because for this audience that's a scientific audience it's really important to be able to distill what is the difference between somebody who claims to have that credential and someone who doesn't because a lot of these things look really shiny and I, you know, there's someone very close to me, a family member, maybe who was a beach body fitness coach oh, okay, and nutrition coach with shake with, with Shakeology, Shakeology and, and yeah. she has zero training. Oh yeah. That goes back a few years, but it's all I got on my Facebook feed. But these are people who have been self-appointed or through a multi-level marketing scheme yeah, have been, you know, kind of, um, uh, anointed as people who would have credentials by giving them basically a flyer. So I really wanted to spell out for this audience, how you and other RDNs or or, or RDs are so well, um, educated and vetted in ter- before you're able to start making claims about health. Yeah. So that, I, think, I really wanted to get that out first.
2: Yeah. And I really appreciate you p- you know pulling that out i think a lot of people also don't realize all the different types of spaces where you can find dietitians i mean many people assume it's only in a hospital or maybe in for school nutrition but i know that there are probably dietitians who are teaching who you've encountered who you know are in academia who do who teach or do research there are dietitians who work with professional athletes, dietitians who work in supermarkets or the culinary space, um, and dietitians who work in biotech bio, for biotechnology companies like Bayer, for example. So um, we're in a lot of different spaces.
1: And you mentioned that you were working with the army, which you know some people would say well with the army what you know what do you have to know about nutrition oh, boy. but the army is a very intricate web oh no it's a horribly intricate web yeah. of how do you deliver and people don't appreciate this how do you deliver fresh fruits and vegetables in containers from the US or from wherever you source them to the front lines of you know, Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran or whatever, wherever you happen to be. And so what was your exact role with the army?
2: Sure. Um, so I, uh, I started out my career with the army working at Walter Reed up in Washington, DC, which at that time was probably one of the, I think if only one of the two, the two largest, uh, military medical centers in the United States. So, um, you saw all types of different levels of care and, and more of the very acute and intricate cases were well to read at that time. Cause of the proximity to NIH and USDA and FDA and the Pentagon really lent itself to that kind of, um, uh, that kind of care. And also that was a big research center as well for, uh, medical research. And um, then I went on to, um, do uh, my career with the army was pretty short. It was only four years of active duty, and that was down in Columbia, South Carolina, at Fort uh, Fort Jackson, which is a big training hub. So, when you're dealing in that kind of environment, it's very much like dealing with athletes because you're you're trying to get these soldiers from a point of maybe being um, not being very active at all to being what it amounts for in most cases, like elite athletes, because of the amount of activity and exercise they have to do. And, um, you know, they're marching, they're running, they're jumping out of uh, perfectly good airplanes, as they say. Um, so you really have to look after them in terms of making sure they're getting the proper nutrition, It's like an athlete.
1: That well, makes a lot of sense. If you're going to have people who are engaging at that level, you need to make sure that their nutrition is spot on. And so this really was the your background that set the table for your current position. So currently you are working with English um, supermarkets, which you're the corporate dietitian for English supermarkets. Can you tell me a little bit about your role there?
2: So it's kind of, Funny that you said Inglis, which is kind of like the Spanish pronunciation, but um, it's actually
1: English.
2: <laughs> we call it English. Um And after yeah. I left the army, I actually was in public health. And so I did public health for the WIC program, which is the Women, Infants and Children program for about a year. And I saw a lot of the um, more high acuity level patients um, NICU babies like the neonatal neonatal intensive care infants, that type of thing. Um, but my job at Ingalls is more of uh, like a consumer facing information. So providing information about everything from uh, how to how to read different labels, what if somebody's newly diagnosed with diabetes and needs to figure out how they might need to eat. Um, recipe tips, food safety tips, um, also a lot of um, myth busting. And that's kind of where you and I intersect, Kevin, because um, you have l- for a long time been a great resource for me when I had questions about different things about um, agriculture and plant breeding and um, misinformation that's out there. So, a lot of my role, especially. Since um, the advent of Facebook and social media, has been myth busting about some of the fear based information out there about our food supply.
1: Well, In- Inglis. Ingles,
2: Ingles. <laughs> we'll get you there, Ingles, Ingles,
1: uh, <laughs> Ingles grocery store. I know, I, you know, you it, my my mom used to listen to Julio Iglesias, <laughs> so I always anyway. Um, it's, it's it's built in deeply. So when you look at this grocery store chain, it appears to me, at least by looking at their online presence, that they do have a good um, kind of social feel that they're um, very excited to articulate with maybe healthy, good eating habits, that kind of thing. Sure. And maybe along the lines of a Whole Foods light, that kind of thing. But at the same time, they have very good policies with respect to GMO and other, um, technologies. So it seems like they really walked the line there extremely well. And how much did you have to, uh, how much of that is because of you?
2: Well, you know, I did help them with the GMO policy. Um, and that was several years ago, probably, probably six or seven years ago. Um, and I've, I've really tried as much as I can to kind of get the word out um, about food safety and about um, genetic engineering, biotechnology within our corporate offices. Um, Like you know, unlike some super some markets, we a supermarket sells everything. You know, we sell. Products with high fructose corn syrup, and we sell products that are locally made and crafted with love and care. We sell products that are imported from different countries, and we sell products that are organic. So you you really have to straddle um, that space. And um, my my line that I've always said is that I want I, I respect people's choices. And I, and I want to see people be able to buy what they want to buy, but based on preference, not on fear. So I don't, I would rather see if somebody says, you know, I really want to buy these organic tomatoes because they look great. They smell great. They're a great price. They're grown locally, whatever. That's awesome. But if people say to me, I have to buy organic because I'm afraid of other foods, then that really concerns me. And and I feel it's my responsibility to help them understand the facts and not be so afraid of our food.
1: So do you consider yourself an educator in the grocery store space with direct connection to consumers?
2: Definitely. I mean, um, we have uh, almost 200 stores, so I don't spend a lot of time in individual stores with individual customers. Most of my interaction is on social media, through articles, through radio programs, and you've been a, you've been a guest on the radio program, um, from TV segments and from answering consumer questions on email, or, or by phone calls. So um, it's more of a a larger scope education rather than a one-on-one type of education.
1: Yes, yeah, I, I totally get that. I, my my wife is a farmer, and she grows small-scale specialty crops on you know what is really eighteen acres of space, and we grow you know everything you know from pears to peaches to. Cauliflower, whatever, but she sells at farmers markets, and we see a lot of the same kind of thing. And I spend a lot of time standing there talking about because people will come up and say, um, "Are these peaches a GMO? Or are these? Uh, what kind of chemicals do you spray with?" Right. And it's such a great opportunity to to talk to people one on one and provide that kind of eye opening discovery that you know, with like say sweet corn. Here is a plant that can protect itself. Rather than have to cut off the end of the year because it was chewed apart by worms. And I, I see so much of an opportunity, and, and Ingalls is brilliant to have you aboard to provide some sort of scientific, evidence based, um, hard nutrition evidence that is based in reality. And, and I love that about your position. So, that you know, it's super cool that they do this. Yeah. But, how does this really start to translate to the current times when we're dealing with issues like covid nineteen right. and uh, and and food safety? so so so, what have you noticed about the big changes since that set in?
2: Well, you know, I definitely seen people cooking and baking more at home, which I guess because primarily because they didn't have much of a choice. There, was a, there really wasn't anything else they could do, which uh, when I sort of, let's see, I started my quarantine probably around March 13th, I want to say. And I thought, what, you know, what can I do? Because all of my events, all the public speaking things I was, would normally be doing were all canceled, like everybody's everybody's stuff was canceled. So I thought, well, you know, this might be an opportunity to focus on the whole uh, idea of helping people find resources and celebrate cooking and baking at home. So I started a hashtag called quarantine kitchen. And I, I think I was probably the first one to do that. And, and really just trying to get people, you know, maybe excited about using foods like potatoes and eggs and um, rice and pasta and what's been so interesting Kevin and I'm sure you can relate to this is all of the negativity about carbohydrates like rice and pasta and bread just sort of went out the window like right away so um, people just was like Give me all the carbohydrates. So that was kind
1: of fun to see. That's hilarious that you'd bring that up because I figured that, you know, when I look across all of the uh, landscape of social media, people aren't screaming about, you know, GMOs and glyphosate. All the conversation is totally shifted right now. And it's all about other aspects of, uh, you know, food and, and diet and things like that. And let's revisit this on the other side of the break. So we're speaking with Leah McGrath. She's the corporate dietitian for Ingalls Supermarkets. (laughs) And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment.
3: (laughs) Since the beginning, almost five years ago, this podcast has served to target misinformation about science, while inspiring application of new technologies. The current COVID-19 crisis was a shock and woke a wave of instant experts that can armchair quarterback a solution for you that defies the guidance of actual authorities. Now, I don't know about yours, but my Facebook thread is a steaming stream of conspiracy and miracle cures. I thought this pandemic would bring us closer to science when actually it stirred the desire to shun those that actually know best. What do those eggheads know anyway? We can think of it as pandemic dunning Kruger, a pandemic, if you will. The people that understand viruses, vaccines, and epidemiology the least are the most confident in their errant positions. They also seem to dominate the communication space. So it's up to you, not only to learn as much as you can about the situation, but then immerse yourself into the discussion. Use social media to share good stories, quality podcasts, and solid science. Engage the pseudo-experts in their false bravado. Remind everyone that this is a time of uncertainty and it's best navigated by scientists at the helm. Not preachers, television pundits, militia dudes, your aunt, or even political leadership. Turn them all off and listen to credible experts that have dedicated their lives to public health. Identify and share good media. That's our role. They give you something to share as you engage those that believe they know the answers when actually nobody does, and good scientists admit that. The best way to find answers faster is to rely on the skilled and steady hand of scientific expertise, and that's what we'll continue to bring you here on the Talking Biotech Podcast.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Leah McGrath. She's a registered dietitian and the corporate dietitian for Ingles Supermarket, or Ingles Supermarket, (laughs) for those of you who have an international flair like me. Um, You know, when we left on the other side, we were talking about this renewed interest in baking and, or, you know, or cooking at home. And I, I didn't know that that was you that started Quarantine Kitchen. Well, all I can say is that I've been to the grocery store very limited number of times, maybe two or three times in the last six weeks. And you cannot, you can't buy bread flour. Right. We always cooked at home and we always made our own bread and we have plenty of eggs here from all our chickens and ducks. So, you know, we were always, you know, doing our own thing. So it's a very strange thing to see everybody jumping on this idea of cooking at home. But are people cooking at home because they're afraid of the grocery store products or that there's maybe something wrong with buying products from, you know, supermarket?
2: Well, I think the biggest... Uh, reason why people are cooking home is at least where we are, and I, I'm sure the same is, is was true in Florida, is that so many of the restaurants closed down um, and only opened up for very limited, like curbside service or delivery, so that really didn't give people a whole lot of options. So either you were gonna cook at home, or maybe you were going to figure out if you could have. Pizza delivered. There's only so much pizza people can eat, I guess. Um, and um, you know, we like immediately in the first couple of weeks, like everything was buttoned up pretty tight here, with the exception of a of a few delivery places and fast food. And then gradually, some of the restaurants kind of figured out, okay, I, I can figure out how to um, have a curbside presence or a delivery presence, but you still, a lot of them in this area anyway, are still only open very limited hours, very limited days of the week. So, um, so I, I think that that's probably the big difference that I've, the reason people are cooking and baking more, um, at home.
1: It's really funny because I had a drier fail. Uh-huh. And I had to replace the heating coil. And I do this stuff on my own. No big deal. You know, it's not a big thing. But I went to the uh, place across town where you buy the dryer parts. And they said they have just been hammered with service requests to fix ovens. Oh, no. because people had ovens that didn't work. <laughs> right, they, Their ovens didn't work. And they didn't really know because they never used them.
2: Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> and so there's been this yeah and so it's been a measurable change in the number of service calls just to make sure an oven works because it just shows that this kind of revitalization of cooking at home and you know and and, and rediscovery of things that we can do at home. Yeah. But is how much of this is grounded in a fear of the virus to the point where and you've been in the grocery store are people really uh, coming to the grocery store and, you know, say quarantining products they buy? I know somebody who does this, and I'm curious how widespread that is. They they buy groceries or have them delivered and put them into isolation for a week. <laughs> how how widespread is that kind of behavior?
2: Well, you know, i I feel like it's pretty widespread. Unfortunately, there was a video that went viral early on. That was done by a very well-intentioned, I think he was like a family practice doctor or something and I want to say Michigan or Minnesota, and he got a lot of play for this video where he was basically talking about the need to disinfect all of your your products that you bring into the home, leave stuff in your garage for a certain amount of days, and then that messaging was sort of picked up by some of the more of the media. Um, So I think there, there, there's a certain percentage of the population that is very afraid of grocery shopping. They're afraid of things being touched. They, you know, I mean, we've had people say, you know, why aren't, why aren't all of your store associates wearing gloves? Mike, because that's not going to be the answer. I mean, you know, them wearing gloves, and then if they, they'd have to change them constantly throughout the day. And that's not going to be the answer. You know, the answer is you washing your hands, you not touching your face, you keeping social distancing, you washing your hands again. (laughs) And uh, like before you prepare food, and before you eat, and if you know, if there's nothing else that comes out of this, Kevin, I think one of the best things might be that people are going to have better hygiene practices. I'm hoping, I don't know, maybe that's what I'm hoping for.
1: And that's a really interesting thought, you know, that could we change the way we think about, you know, how well we communicate diseases or how, you know, how we pass these things from one person to another. I guess the thing that I think about is um, how do we, really start to appreciate the small producer. And I think I do see such a shift that's happening where people are are gravitating the farmers markets and people are gravitating away from grocery stores because there's just this feeling of, you know, big is bad. And that if I buy the bananas out of the big box store, that there's something more likely to be wrong with them there than if I'm buying from someone down the street. And I think that's the feeling. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm somebody who supports the small farmer because I'm, I'm married to one. <laughs> but I'm really sensing that people are very confident in buying from us, whereas they're not so confident in the grocery store. So does this mean like a wholesale shift away from the big box stores for food and maybe something where smaller grocery stores and, you know, the place down the street might have a little more of a toehold?
2: You know, I think that's a really good point and a very valid point, Kevin. Um I th- you know, fortunately, I work for a supermarket that that has had a long history of buying from local farmers. I mean, and from local uh producers and artisan bread makers and and I work with those people all the time. We have events in our stores or we had events in our stores um that were called Taste of Local, where we bring in local farmers and local food producers a couple times a month and have kind of like an indoor farmer's market. And people really, local is the one trend that surpasses everything else. And it has been for several years now. Like if you start to, if you do, you read any kind of survey data about what's important to them about uh, food, customers about food, Local always trends higher than anything else than organic than gluten free than anything else because that idea really resonates with people. the idea that they're helping their um local farmers their local food producers their local hot sauce makers, people that they may actually know and that are contributing to the economy, keeping land as farmland um So, and that seems to cross all demographics too, which is really interesting. It's not just people who are in the 1% who have a lot of disposable income, but I find that same sentiment and that's borne up in research in people who, you know, it may be a struggle for them to get to the, the farmer's market or to buy something from a local producer in the supermarket. It's still a priority for them.
1: It's really interesting because when you talk about the 1%, you always had the uh, folks who could, you know, have a personal shopper for their clothes or their shoes. But this new shift in the trend towards more local farming is really, I have a personal farmer. (laughs) I got somebody down the street that I can, and I believe this is true, that I can get to know the person who produces what I eat and they know what i like they're willing to plant it for me and i don't have to do that i can go to my job and make their job growing my favorite lettuce or my favorite tomatoes or whatever and it's really an interesting trend and you see it you see it in real time at the same time you have this phenomenon of the web which provides us international you know access to anything and are there other trends that you have noticed about uh, web searches or recipes that may be suddenly popular, or you know, th- do the statistics from the World Wide Web say that people are starting to cook from home and search for certain alternatives?
2: Yeah, you know, um, and I've looked at this uh, for several years in a row, and um, like, what do, what do people search on? What are the searchable recipes and food terms that? resonate the most with people. And it's always comfort foods. I mean, you, you know, it, people are not searching for recipes with quinoa. People are searching for recipes with how to make right now it's how to make anything with hamburger, or how to make a uh, banana bread or sourdough bread. And, you know, in the time before COVID, which I think we will probably call be calling, you know, BC, like sometime down the road in the time before covid it was still like comfort foods making roast chicken doing a pot roast making lasagna so you know these sort of elevated food networky top chef kind of recipes are great but the reality is in our own homes we want to make meals that we think are um achievable, accessible, and a, and our whole family will appreciate, not something with ingredients that require us to go to four different stores to find, not recipes with 30 ingredients in them, things that are um, uh, accessible.
1: And that's a really great point, because I think, you know, as somebody who cooks at home a lot, we found ourselves kind of doing an inventory of the refrigerator and saying, all right, what will we cook now? And then going out in the field and saying, what didn't sell at the market? And saying, out of this you know, constellation of ingredients, what can we do? And it's really led to a lot of creativity and a lot of interesting thinking. When we've, we've had um, like uh, taking turnip tops or oh, yeah. uh, radish tops and made pesto. You know, who would have ever thought of that? But these are all things that are happening now in real time, whereas this would never have happened before this crisis. We'd be, you know, going out and getting a pizza or, you know, making, you know, decisions about convenience over substance. And, you know, does this mean that maybe we've turned a little bit of a corner and how much do you think this kind of change might stick around?
2: I think that is such an interesting point, Kevin, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know what they say? You know, necessity is the mother of invention. So one of the things that I saw repeatedly on Quarantine Kitchen were recipes that it, that where people would say, "I didn't have this, so I used this instead. I didn't have any pasta left, so I had some ramen noodles, and I used them instead." Or um, I, um, my friend, Kim Kircher, she made, um, she had a recipe you were supposed to use, I think it, you you were supposed to use, it was like a muffin recipe. You're supposed to use something weird, like tomato juice in it. And she didn't have any tomato juice. So she thinned out ketchup and used ketchup and it worked great. So I, I, I think for many people, being in quarantine has been like being on an episode of chopped on the food network, you know, where you've got to figure it out with what you have in your basket or your pantry or your fridge or your freezer. And I think in many cases people have been um, sort of validated like, Hey, I I can do this. I can figure it out. There's even websites where you can put in ingredients and it will give you suggestions of dishes. So um, I think it's been kind of fun to watch. And I hope that, as you said, coming out on the the other side of this, maybe we'll see more people see the value in sitting, uh, making a meal together, making more meals at home, um, maybe buying more of those ingredients to make meals rather than ordering out Or going to restaurants and they'll see, wow, you know, I can buy all those ingredients for $50 and I can eat for a couple of meals rather than going out to dinner and only having one meal.
1: I I, I love it. And, And you see this because people who come to the, you know, farmers markets or even us at home, we have a kind of a week in front of us that's planned out in our heads. About what we're going to eat on what days and how we're going to do it and, you know, what do we have, you know, what do we need to get, you know, what do we need to go harvest. That's a really cool problem to have. It's funny that you mentioned the um, kind of substitution on the fly. My grandmother was the worst cook in the world. Depression era (laughs) grandmother, you know, you didn't waste anything. And I could tell stories of this all day, but we once made an angel food cake when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and she didn't have any leavening agents or any uh, cream of tartare was the thing that she didn't have along with things like yeast and whatever you make cake or baking powder. And so she put in uh, maple syrup and that was the substitute. (laughs) 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 And I don't know how she got that. Well, we don't, we don't have that. So we'll just use maple syrup. And so, um, the thing that was so funny was me and my sister gnawing on this is supposed to be angel food cake, right? Uh-huh. So this very light, fluffy cake. The two of us were sitting gnawing on this thing that was best like a, uh, it was like a bread kielbasa. It was a <laughs> solid <laughs> tube of of wheat and absolutely horrible.
2: That's great. Fred but kielbasa. we, we
1: loved every bite of it. Well, we made it at home, right? Yeah. It's really what it was. It was, ugh. but 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 I, I i really like this kind of motion and the idea that people are finally starting to get more in touch with their food and the choices they're making and using what they have that's available how do you think this will translate to the area that you and i dabble in so much about food myth and vilification of ingredients or or different strategies to create those ingredients. Do you think people will care less about that and really start to say, we know this is safe, we're going to use it, and we're going to have something really special?
2: Well, you know, know, along with the fact that people sort of um – stopped vilifying carbohydrates we stopped seeing vilification of processed foods and packaged foods and that's been borne up in research that's been done by a couple of different like groups like Hartman and the Food Marketing Institute all saw that the whole conversation around um, you know, frozen foods, canned foods, processed foods sort of went out the window because people realized you know what? I'm not going to be able to keep um, fresh stuff in my refrigerator for two weeks, right? It's not—it's just not going to work. I've got to be able to rely on canned and frozen and dried packaged things. And um, we heard anecdotally a lot of stories from people that said who were saying, "Wow, this is much better than I realized," or "I didn't realize that this product was out there." So, you know, maybe a renewed appreciation for um, some processed foods, so whether it we're talking about canned foods or packaged foods or um, or frozen foods. Um, I think we're, we're already seeing that that sort of data that people are buying these things when they have an, yeah, like a good example in your area is orange juice. You know that sales went through the roof on orange juice, right?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, they've, they've actually done very well compared to where they were.
2: Yeah, and some of that's due to the fact that, you know, people were, people were looking for the whole idea of vitamin C and healthy, and, you know, maybe there's a link to prevention of coronavirus. But it's also, you know... Orange juice got vilified for a long time for being this sort of packaged juice, the whole sugar thing. Um, and now, I mean, orange juice sales went through the roof. They had some of the the best sales that they've had in probably seven or eight years.
1: No, very true. I w- I, I've been keeping an eye on that. And it's one of the good examples of... Where you talk about processing, like, you know, orange juice is a processed product. Sure. You're taking oranges and separating them into their components and bringing them back together. But when you talk about processing, humans have been doing this for a long time. Sure. Whether it was drying or preserving or, you know, any way you could preserve, canning. Um, the, the folks who I always find who are the most um, vicious about well, you must eat it right off the plant. It has to be fresh and whole foods. Well, those folks are in Hawaii or Southern California, yep. Yep. they're not in Minneapolis or Saskatoon.
2: Right.
1: You know, that when when you don't have a choice, and when canning is really, you know, who wants to eat canned carrots for an entire season, you know, or canned beans? So the folks who are in those scenarios typically are the most vocal. Whereas, folks who are in places where you would really appreciate having fresh fruits and vegetables through a modern supply chain, those folks are really excited to have that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've had the pleasure, and I think you know her, Rachel Loudon. Do you know Rachel Loudon, the food historian?
1: Yeah. 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 Sure.
2: Yeah. And we've taught, we've had a sit down conversation about, you know, what the whole ability, and access to processed food has meant to um, nutrition around the world and food safety, and also um, having a generation of women who are able to work outside the home and not have to, you know, tend to crops and feed chickens and kill chickens and pluck chickens and, you know, on and on and on. So uh, people who are, Quick to vilify foods are also ones who usually have the ability to have access to higher income, have higher income and can access a bigger variety of foods anyway.
1: Yeah, if people understood what it took to grow that radish or to make that chicken, I mean, processing chickens is is a horrible uh, job and you do it because you do it because that's that's how you eat. But you know when this is done at an industrial scale, which many people condemn, they fail to realize that this is what allows people to have access to, and especially the poorest people very affordable food that is high in protein, high in nutrition right. and so this is where you know we start getting into this idea of how can uh this opportunity for covid nineteen start to change the way that we communicate about food and food science and the value of scale and being able to produce on a massive scale. And do you have any thoughts on that kind of thing?
2: Well, you know, it's um, it's really interesting to watch the conversation, especially with what's happening now with the outbreaks of um, COVID-19 and some of the very large processing plants And, you know, you certainly have a segment of the population who are really um, kind of coming down hard on these processing plants as kind of these evil places that are full of, you know, they're kind of likening it to slave labor. You know, the reality of the situation is these are large plants that employ a lot of people. They are working very closely together. So the answer is not, to shut those places down permanently, but to make sure the practice within them and for the employees are safer. Because, you know, in reality, we're seeing outbreaks in nursing home centers, long-term care centers, prisons, anywhere where people are close together for long periods of time. You know, um, if schools were in session, we would Or maybe colleges were in session, we would see high levels of um, the virus in in colleges where people are in dorms together or in classes together. So the answer is not, it's not an opportunity for the people who are against animal agriculture to shut those facilities down. It is an opportunity to uh, maybe do a better job to Care for workers in those facilities, um, but it's certainly making people take a look at our whole food system and realize that how interdependent it all is.
1: So, how do you feel about the folks who say we need to tear down the whole food system and everybody just grow their own?
2: Well, you know we, <laughs> you know we can't go backwards in time. That's you know uh, you probably know James Wong, botany geek, who's over in the UK. And he had a tweet about this just recently, you know, that, um, and he tweets about this type of topic a lot. You know, we, you know, we are not an agrarian economy anymore. That's just not practical. It's not, uh, and it's, as you pointed out, it's, it can be a very hard life. And, you know, here in Western North Carolina, uh, you know, the farmers that I, I know and that I talk to regularly they will joke around and say you know I'll say you know do you ever buy the lottery ticket do you ever do that and they're like we we farm we gamble every day we don't need to buy a lottery ticket because every day every season is a gamble for us you know whether we're going to have a hailstorm are or we're going to have flooding or we're going to have a drought um so we that's It's a very precarious living, and um, I certainly appreciate all the farmers that we have, big and small, who do that, And um, but we can't all be farmers. We can't go backward in time to change to, from where we are with, what, 1% to 2% of people farming, we can't go back to 40%. We probably can't even go back to 20%. So we need to be... Realistic about our food
1: supply. That's exactly right. I, I know my, uh, you know, not to keep going back to my situation here at home, but, you know, my wife, she she works 12 hours a day doing grueling work in the field, pretty much a one-woman operation, and probably is making minimum wage doing it, if she's lucky. But it's her passion, and it's not, she doesn't want to work in an office. She wants to raise food and raise crops. And she'll have people who come here to work because they want to get a toehold and maybe in learning how to farm, learning how to grow different crops. And most people last a few days or a week. Right. And they're making wages much higher than she does on a per hour basis. Right. But it's just when you start to expose yourself to the rigor of what it actually takes, it's not an attractive profession. And so, you know, like James Wong said, we need to be celebrating the abundance we have and and being excited that we live in the best time, the best of times in terms of our access to the, the safest, most diverse food supply in human history. So, you know, that that's pretty much, you know, I agree with him a thousand percent. Is there any other thoughts that you see or any other trends that maybe make you scratch your head about where we're going post COVID with respect to the grocery industry or the way that food will be delivered at retail.
2: You know, I think that um, we did see a big bump in online grocery shopping um, that, that allowed people to, you know, have it order food and have it delivered to their home or pick it up there. Um, You know, if you think about it, Kevin, it's so interesting. If, if this had happened in 1990 or even in 2000, none of that would have been possible. So, you know, to have to, I think people don't realize how fortunate we are to have, even if this is a terrible thing, well, it is a terrible thing that we are in the, in the best time to have to go through it. You know, because we have so many different avenues, at least here in the United States, to access food if you're in a certain demographic. Now, um, other demographics, you know, this has been horrible for people. This has been uh, life-changing and probably potentially life-ending for some people. So, you know, maybe coming out on the other side a more appreciation for the food system, more of an appreciation for the people behind the scenes who make things happen, whether we're talking about farmers or grocery store clerks or truck drivers or warehouse workers or people who are the scientists who are developing seeds and um, better crops. Um, so maybe if, if nothing else comes out of it in terms of food, maybe a more of an appreciation um, would be something we could all hope for.
1: Wow. And what a great point to go out on. You know, I I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. So we're speaking with Leah McGrath. Uh, She's the corporate dietitian for Ingalls supermarkets uh, who are all over the Southeast, I I suppose. I've never been in one. So what states are Ingalls in?
2: Sure, we have. We're primarily in four four states: North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. And then we have like a random store in Virginia and one in Alabama. But if you're up around um, Western North Carolina, North Northern Georgia, Upstate South Carolina, you you see quite a few of our stores.
1: Well, very good. They're very lucky to have you, <laughs> and you know I've always appreciated everything you've done on social media. So, if people wanted to connect with you on social media through either uh, Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, where can they find you? Give give me the whole thing.
2: Sure, um, they can find me on Twitter as Ingles Dietitian, I N G L E S, and Dietitian has two T's. And then my non supermarket account is Leah McGrath RD on Twitter and then um, on Facebook, I'm Leah McGrath dietitian on Facebook. So those are the primary places.
1: And of course I'll list all of those with the episode. So Leah McGrath, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate you.
1: And as always, thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for your support through Patreon Thank you for your reviews and your kind words everywhere that you've put them. We're trying to grow and we're trying to keep doing better as we go into our sixth year of podcasting, which will start in June. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfulta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time Sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.